Shalom to each of you and welcome. We're very glad that you are taking time to join with us for our weekly live stream event, a virtual worship service. And this is a collaboration between loveisrael.org and the Congregation of the Word. And we like to call it Midnight from Jerusalem because each Motzi Shabbat, that is Saturday night at midnight, we gather here in Israel for this time of study. And we're going to begin, as you hopefully know, we're studying the book of Esther. And for our call to worship, there's a very well-known passage of scripture from the book of Esther, chapter 4 and verse 14. And I'm going to read just the last part of this verse in the middle of it where it says, and who knows, and the context is that Mordecai is speaking to Esther, his niece, and he says to her, who knows if for a time as this you have arrived at the kingdom. And this speaks about God's providence. Mordecai is recognizing that God is involved in all things. He can use what he wants for his purpose. He can reject those things that are displeasing to him. But God is aware of all things. He is omniscient. And here, Mordecai is instructing Esther, you need to be sensitive that God is at work, that God has positioned you in this location for this current situation. And it reminds us that God uses individuals for his purpose. And the question that really should be posed to each of us is this. Are we desiring to be used by him? Are we wanting to be individuals that are used by God for something that is greater than ourselves? To influence, to bless others for the will of God. Well, with that said, we're going to turn to another passage of Scripture this evening from the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 6 for the Shema, as we pledge our faith to the one God, the God of Israel, who is three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning in verse 4. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Baruch Shem Kavod Machuto Leolam Vaed. Viahafta et Adonai Elohecha, Bekol Levavcha, Uvakol Nafshecha, Uvakol Meodecha. Vehayu Hadvarim Haele Asher, Anoki Mitzvacha Hayom Al Levavecha. Veshena Netam Levanecha, Vetibartam Bam, Beshiftacha, Bevetacha, Uvlektacha, Vederk, Ushakbecha, Ukomecha, Uchartam le ot al Yedecha, Vehayu le totafot ben Anecha, Uftaftam al Mizazot Betecha, Uvesharecha. Which means, Hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Literally, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
with all your soul and with all your very essence. And these things which I command you today, they shall be upon your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk on the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. Ukshartam, you shall bind them for a sign upon your hands, and they shall be for frontlets, or in Hebrew we would say tefillin, here's the word le totafot, for phylacteries we might say, between your eyes, uftavtam, and you shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. And now let's move into a time of prayer. O Lord our God, God of our fathers, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we exalt your name. We praise you. We give you thanks. We ask that you bless this time of, of worship. Lord, we, we extol your name above all names. For you alone are God. There is no other. We praise you for your son, who you sent into this world to come and redeem us from our sins. We thank you for the work that he performed upon that tree, the shedding of his blood, that he laid down his life in order that we might have life and have it eternally. And Lord, we pray tonight for those who are, are struggling in whatever way, due to health problems, due to discouragement, due to financial problems, relationship problems, whatever it might be, we know that you, God, are greater than these things. And with you, they can be solved and overcome. So we pray for a spirit of overcoming. We pray for, for your power to, to be upon us, that we might walk in your will, that we might obey your commands, that we might do those things that bring honor and glory to you and to testify of our faith and that influence others, blessing them that they may be drawn closer to you and in obedience to your will that they might live. So, Father, use us. And we know that, that there are times that are difficult that are approaching, but we remain faithful and confident that the one in us is greater than the one in this world and that he has already been defeated. I'm speaking about our enemy, Hasatan, that he was defeated by your son. And Lord, we praise you and thank you for this victory, this victory by faith that we can share in, one that we will know for eternity in your kingdom. And Lord, we know that, that things are changing. Give us insight. Give us your perspective. Let us see things correctly that we might recognize your hand and your work in, in this world, that we might participate and that the individuals that you are well pleased with. All these things we, we bring before you in that most blessed name, Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. We need to be people who are theologically correct and who are loyal and faithful to the revelation of Scripture and not the traditions of men. God clearly, and we're going to see it in tonight's passage, God clearly 
has given free will to humanity. That is that we make true decisions, and obviously these decisions that we make, they're real, true decisions, and they have implications. And free will in no way, and we're going to learn this clearly tonight, man's free will in no way attacks the sovereignty of God. God's sovereignty is, is great. And what do I mean by that? Very simply, for God to be sovereign, this does not mean that he must manipulate and cause us to do what he wants. The will of God will, in the end, be established despite the disobedience of men. God is greater than our disobedience. Our disobedience, I'm speaking about from a humanity standpoint, does not ultimately cause God any problems, hinder him from doing what ultimately he is going to do. God is supreme, and his sovereignty speaks of him being greater than all. And when we have to reduce God to a God who manipulates, a God who controls fully, a God who does not allow real choices. And what I mean by that is this. There's a very well-known Bible teacher, and when he was asked about free will, he gave this example. He says, we have free will in sinfulness, meaning we can choose this sin, we can choose that sin, but we're always going to choose sin. And he says, unless God and only God intervenes and changes our heart, does that work of regeneration only after that, that we can respond to the gospel. So God manipulates some to receive the gospel. They see it as irresistible grace only for the elect, and that others, because they are dead, and we are dead spiritually in our trespasses and our sins, what does that mean? We are in bondage to sin, and we cannot, we cannot be separated, delivered from sin through human interaction, human power. What one can do either of themselves or what another one can do for you. Only God can deliver us, but realize this. God has, and this is a huge doctrine in the scripture, and that is God's foreknowledge. And we see here that God's foreknowledge has saw fit to create humanity with a conscience. In Hebrew, that term is matzpun. And through this conscience, we can, to a degree, understand truth. Now, can one, having the Holy Spirit in him, having become that new creation, are they able to, a believer, a regenerated, saved individual, are they better able, better equipped through the ministry of the Holy Spirit to discern the truth of God? Absolutely. But still, nevertheless, through the conscience, we are able to, to a certain degree, see truth 
and agree with God. For example, there are individuals, unbelievers, those who do not believe that God even exists. But if you ask them, is it right to steal, to lie? They'll say no. It is their conscience that bears witness, and Paul speaks of this in a very significant way in the book of Romans. And this lays the foundation, this conscience lays the foundation for Paul speaking about how all of humanity, those that have the law and those that don't, that, that all of them spiritually are on that same, same place. Where's that? Lostness. Now, it's through the revelation of God, through his truth, the scripture, that, that there's an advantage to Israel. Paul says this. What advantage is there of being a Jew? He says much in every way. Why? What does he say? The first of the matter is this, that God gave his oracles, his word, scripture, to the Jewish people. When they received that and they had an advantage, were they still lost? Yes, they were. Could they, to some degree, understand God's revelation in their lostness? Yes, they could. And that's still true for anyone, Jew and Gentile, who comes into contact with the word of God. Secondly, we're going to see, undeniably, that God is able to accomplish his will if someone obeys or someone disobeys. Because God can use another, there can be a different means for God accomplishing his will. But here's a very important takeaway from this passage that we're going to look at tonight. And that is this. In my disobedience, I will not be blessed. Meaning this, God, even if I disobey, God is still able to accomplish his objective. He's not dependent upon me. I'm dependent upon him. But God can still accomplish his purpose despite my rejection, my unwillingness to participate with him. But because I rejected, did not participate, did not obey, I will not have any of the benefit of God's will being completed. This is going to be clearly taught early on in our study this evening. So with that said, take out your Bible and look with me to the book of Esther, Megillat Esther, chapter 4, and we're going to begin where we left off last week. We concluded with verse 11, and I want to go back and read this. And remember, at this time, Mordecai is having a discussion with Esther through a third party, through one of the servants of the king. And Mordecai has, has shared with Esther this plot to exterminate the Jewish people. And he's telling her that she needs to act, that she needs to behave. There's something that God has for her to do. And that is to go before the king at once and to plea for her people. But she 
isn't wanting to do this for a reason. For her to abruptly, and we talked about this last week, the Bible says according to that culture, there's a law. If someone, doesn't matter who it is, even the queen, if she goes uninvited, having not been called by the king, if she enters into his presence without this invitation, there's one law. And what is that? Such a one must be put to death, but there's one exception. And that if is if the king, he extends to this person the, the golden scepter. If so, this person lives. But she says something. Look with me to the very end of this verse, verse 11. She writes that she has not been called, literally, Vani lo nikreti levo el hamalek zeshloshim yom. And I have not been called to come to the king this 30 days. Now, there's two implications. We talked about this at the conclusion of last week's study. Some say she is saying, he hasn't talked to me for 30 days. We've had no interaction. So I'm sure that very soon I'm going to be called to him and I'll have this opportunity. So let's just wait. I don't need to do anything rash. I don't need to risk my life by going to him. He'll call me any day now. Now, the second implication is this. The fact that the king has not called her for 30 days could imply that the king's not pleased with her. He's lost interest in her. He does not like her anymore. And therefore, if she comes in uninvited, he'll use this law to terminate her, to put her to death because she will have violated the king's law just like Vashti. So she's saying in both interpretations, it's not good for me to just go. Now we're going to see as we begin the text, a new passage, the end of chapter four and Mordecai's response. Look now to verse 12. Esther chapter four, verse 12, where we're going to begin our study. It says, and they told to Mordecai the words of Esther, verse 13. And Mordecai returned, that is, he answered, he responded to Esther. And this is where it gets so theologically significant. Verse, verse 13, second part. Mordecai, he responded and it was said to Esther, do not, here's his words, do not imagine in your soul. Now, that is a Hebrew idiom that speaks about one, thinking thoroughly, meditating upon something in a very, very significant way. And Mordecai is saying, do not think, don't imagine, don't think thoroughly about this situation that you, that you are going to escape 
the king's house. Or some would translate it, because you're in the king's house, don't think that you're going to escape and, and be different from all the, the Jews. He's saying, the edict says that all of the Jewish people, this includes you. The fact that you are in the king's house, don't think that you're going to escape. So Mordecai is accurately based upon the law, the intent of Mordecai. He wants all, all the descendants of the Jewish people, all who belong to the same, same group as Mordecai, the Jewish people, to be put to death, including, including the law would mean also Esther. Verse 14, he continues and he says, for if you, and the term here has word for silent twice, and how we translate that in English, it's a special construction, and it would be rather rendered the best by saying, if you are utterly silent at this time. Now, this is where we get to an understanding, a biblical understanding of the sovereignty of God. Esther has a real choice to be made. She has to determine whether she's going to obey or not. Now, faith produces obedience. When we truly believe God's word, we believe him, we're going to respond in obedience. It's just a natural outcome of faith. But what I would say to you is that she has a real decision to make. It's not a make-believe decision. She's not feeling this inwardly, but it's already been decided. This is not the case. Mordecai is saying, you have an option. You can utterly be silent in this and do nothing, not go, remain idle, and wait until you think it's the right time rather than following my instructions. So look again, verse 14. For if you are utterly silent at this time. Now this shows that even despite Esther's, Esther's disobedience to Mordecai, her not going in, being silent, he says, Ravak, which means uh, prosperity or success and deliverance will stand for the Jewish people from another place, meaning this, there's a different source. God's not limited to Esther. This is the theological takeaway for us. He is not limited for his will to be maintained only through Esther. She has a real decision to make. There's free will. She can be utterly silent and do nothing. And what's going to happen? He's already said, she will perish. He's going to say that in a moment again. She will not escape the king's judgment just because she's in the king's palace. So he says, 
If you are silent, God's faithful, despite her lack of faithfulness. God's faithful even when we're all not. He's going to move to accomplish his purposes. He can use us or he can use someone else or he can just bring it about himself through whatever means that he wants. He's free. He is sovereign. So it says that Ravach, this is profit, success, the, the accomplishment and deliverance will stand for the Jewish people from another place. But then he says, and this is huge, but you and your house of your father. So he's saying, you and everyone from your house, he says, you will perish. So here's the option. She has a real decision. If she is silent, Mordecai is saying, Mordecai is speaking for God. Everything that he says is in line with the truth of God, the will of God. He's a, a type of prophet in, in this, this scroll of Esther. And he's saying, in the end, God, he's got a purpose. He's got a plan. He will deliver the Jewish people, even if it's just a remnant, in order that ultimately his purposes of this kingdom is going to be established. But if you are silent, you, your father's house, meaning all the descendants from you, they will perish. But God will bring about a source of deliverance from a different location, a different place. And then he concludes this 14th verse by this famous statement that we read, which means, and who knows if for a time such as this, you have arrived to the kingdom, meaning you're in the palace. And what's so important is this initial phrase, now I've shared with you, any time, that this construction, which is, in simple Hebrew, we call it the, the present tense. It's not yada, uh, 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 who knew. It's not me, eda, who will know, but me, yodea, who knows. And whenever the present tense is used in the scripture, in the Hebrew, there is an emphasis. It takes this and makes it emphatic. So Mordecai is emphatically telling her, who knows if for times such as this, meaning this time, this purpose, for this reason, this is why you have been brought to the kingdom that you are the queen. Verse 15. Now we're going to see Esther's decision. And this is showing us, the reader informing us of her faith, of her, and this is a, a big term, her reliance upon God, her making herself dependent, dependent upon God, her trusting in God. This is where 
we see God's activity in our situation personally. When we make ourselves dependent, we trust, we rely upon God. And God puts us in situations where we must make a decision, a real decision. Not a make-believe decision that God's already forced, God's already determined, no, no, and no. These are real implications for her decision. What will be? We see something. See, one would have to say one of two things. Either that Mordecai is wrong, the scripture is saying something that's not accurate, because if you are one who subscribes to Calvinism, this is also known as Reform Theology, you, you do not believe in truly a free will in the fullest sense. Now, some, in order to, to hide this, camouflage this, they'll give an example such as this. They'll say, oh, yes, hum humanity has free will to make real decisions. All people do that. But then they, they, they subject it to limitations. And here's the example that some would give. Think for a moment about a prisoner. A prisoner is in bondage. He's in that cell. He's in prison. Now, he has the ability to decide, well, is he going to sit on this little bed? Is he going to stand in the corner? Is he, where is he going to go? But it's constrained. It's limited as an outcome of him being in prison. So he can determine whether he's going to, to look up or look down, those type of decisions, but he is not free to leave this place. Now, what I would say is that this is not factual. This is not a, a description or an example that really speaks to our free will. We make real decisions. Those not that are limited, she's not limited. She has the freedom to do two things. One, obey, two, disobey. If she obeys this freedom, to obey God is going to have great deliverance for the people, a great outcome, a great result, deliverance, success for the Jewish people through her. But if not, if she makes a real decision that says no, God, from another way, this is what Mordecai is saying, this is what the Word of God is saying, through a different source, a different way, God is going to accomplish his will. This speaks, it's a classic example of the sovereignty of God. Now, look, if you would, to verse 15. Now we're going to see Esther's response, her decision. And it shows faithfulness, reliance, trusting in God. Esther said to return, meaning to answer, Mordecai. And here's her response. Look now to verse 16. She gives word to this servant to go and respond to Mordecai what she's going to do. She says, go, Mordecai is being told by her, Go and gather up all the Jews, the ones who are found located in Shusha, 
in this city where, where they reside, that they should fast concerning me. So she's saying, I'll do it, but I want fasting. And fasting, there is no fasting apart from prayer. There is always an inherent relationship. Now, when you look at the New Covenant, for example, you'll see something. You'll see that, that in some, some versions of the Bible, it will say fasting, and others will say fasting and prayer. Why is that? Well, probably the best manuscripts have simply fasting. It was understood from the original culture that fasting always includes prayer. But because the scripture went out to different cultures, it was more likely added in order to convey that fasting always includes prayer. People put in fasting and prayer. These are the slight differences in the, in the manuscripts of the New Testament. So she is saying, Mordecai, you go and you assemble all the Jewish people found in Shushan that they fast concerning me, this, this situation. And what is fasting? Here's biblical fasting. Now, I don't know why that this is a hard thing to understand, but, but fasting is not eating nor drinking. Fasting is not putting things into a blender and drinking it, and you say, well, I didn't eat because I drank. This is not fasting. Fasting, biblically, is no consuming of any food or drink. This is what it says. Not my interpretation. It's what the Word of God says. She speaks, do not eat, and it's in the plural, that you all do not eat and do not drink three days, three full days. And she says, which means day and night, which implies three full days. She says, also I and, and my young women, these young women that were her attendants, I will fast thus. So she says, I'm going to fast, and the young women with me, we're all going to fast. And then, with this, thusly, I will go to the king, which is not according to the law. And then she says, Ve-kasher. Now, this is important because almost every Bible translates this simple word, kasher, incorrectly. If you go and you look at what kasher means, it's simply when. Now, some Bibles will translate it if, because. It's uncertain, right? We don't know what's going to happen. So if makes sense to our mind. If she dies, she dies. But this is not what it's saying. The scripture is revealing something. And this shows how oftentimes we are called to obey God, even when inwardly we don't think it's going to have a good outcome. Now, perhaps one of the reasons why she was wanting this prayer support, people fasting in light of this situation, is because she knows, do you know this? That prayer and fasting changes reality.
Prayer and fasting brings about in my life the will of God. Now, this again is a huge concept for us to understand. You have those that say, well, everything that happens has to be the will of God or God is in sovereign. That is a false statement. Let me give an example that's something that violates that sin. It is never, did you hear that? It is never God's will for someone to sin. God never causes, never puts it in someone's mind, never wants his purposes to be advanced by sin. But God is able to use whatever. He would never lead, cause, want someone to sin, thinking that, well, this sin is going to fulfill the purposes of God. No. But sin does not necessarily stop the purpose of God, the plan of God, the will of God. God can take that and turn it, and this is what we're going to see in, in the upcoming weeks. How God, and we'll see why in a moment, but, but why God is going to bring a, a change. He's going to, to overturn everything for good, his will. And what is the, the cause of that? It's this prayer and fasting. And something else we see, and let's translate this last part right. I hun, uh, highlighted, underscored this word, ve-kasher. Let's read the whole last part of the verse. And then, or thusly, I will come to the king, which is not according to the law. And literally it says, and when I perish, I perish. What she is saying is this, and what the word of God is revealing to us for a theological understanding is that she believes she's going to die that she is going to do this and the king is going to use this act of hers that she's being commanded to do by Mordecai. She's going to submit. Esther always submits. She always obeys. But inwardly, she believes it is going to bring about her death. She says literally, when I perish, I perish. That's what she's saying. Now, this is being real. There's sometimes that we are called to do something and in our own flesh, in our own mind, according to what we think, we say, you know what? This isn't going to end well. I know, God, you're calling me to do this, but, but I don't have good feelings about it. So what? You are not called to obey your feelings, your emotions, what, what you think. You are called to obey the instructions of God, and leave the outcome to God. She truly believes this. And in one sense, this is more honorable to Esther. Why? Because in the frailty of her humanity, she does not see in her own mind this ending well. But nevertheless, she obeys God. And this is an opportunity for God to show, to manifest his control, his sovereignty, his power 
in this situation because, as you know, she's not going to perish. There is going to be a change in what she thinks is going to happen. Now let's go to our last verse, verse 17. We read, Vayavor, which means any past. Who's the subject of that verb? Mordecai. Now, more, more often than not, we would think of it in a, a sense to translate it. He went, he departed, he, he passed, he left. So we read in verse 17, and Mordecai, he passed, he departed, and notice, and did, he did according to all which Esther commanded him. Now, this is also most informative. Throughout the scripture, we have, up until this time, we have something very different. We have always Esther submitting to Mordecai. But now we see a change. And why is this being taught to us? Because Esther is doing something. Instead of her simply following instructions of Mordecai, getting her spiritual counsel from him and him alone, his discipleship of him, him, as we prayed earlier tonight when we said, and teach your children diligently. We see Mordecai did that to Esther, and now she is matured, and she is seeing, and making right spiritual decisions. And what is that right spiritual decision that she's making? She's asking for prayer and fasting to be done in her behalf. She understands God does involve, get involved in situations to change what would be the normal outcome. See, what we're called to understand about this passage is this. Left to the natural, left to the, the situation without prayer and fasting, we should conclude, yes, the king, Ahasuerus, would have used this for the purpose of, of Esther's demise. This is why he hasn't called her for 30 days. It's a long time. But now what's going to happen is that this prayer, this fasting has brought about a change in the situation. A change that brings about God's will. God's will in this situation for, for her and beyond that. But we need to remember what Mordecai says, and he's speaking with the inspiration of God, Esther, if, if you don't do this, you're going to perish. She thinks, if I do it, I'm going to perish. That's what verse 16 says. But after prayer and fasting, these three days to reveal, very important, to document, to testify, that's what the number three is about we're going to see God's involvement being documented, God bringing about a change. So let me simply conclude 
by encouraging you. Be an individual that, that makes decisions rooted in prayer and fasting. Be someone in all time for all things that rely, that trust, that make yourself dependent upon God. Because these things, faithfulness, dependence upon God, prayer and fasting brings about a true change. There are many things that happen in this world that are not God's will. Do these things foil God? They do not. Do they stop God from ultimately achieving what he has promised that he's going to do? They do not. But these things that are not God's will, for example, sin and the, the repercussions, the implications, the outcome, the results of sin, oftentimes bring about something that is not God's will. Now, in the end, God will overcome that. But here's the thing. It may mean that God's overcoming that does not involve you. That you will suffer something that's not God's will. Let me give an example. It is not God's will that anyone should perish. But will people perish? Yes, they will. Eternally, I'm speaking about eternal condemnation, damnation. God did not choose anyone for that. God knows that there's going to be people, and he knows who they are. This is his foreknowledge. But God did not make, it's not God's plan that this would happen. God desires that all people, and all people do, need to repent, turn away from sin, turning to him, and be healed. God, this is why the gospel is proclaimed that we are commanded to go all places to do that, because it can bring about a real change, an eternal change. So decisions, they're real. Yes, God's sovereign, but God's super sovereignty does not demand that God manipulates everything so that nothing could go outside his will, because if it did, then this would attack and, and, and defeat God. That is a false teaching. So we'll conclude with that until next week when we begin a new chapter in this book of Esther, chapter 5. Until then, shalom from Israel.